Glorious Lord Jesus, we want to see him today. We've gathered to see him and no one else. We didn't come to hear a children's story or baby dedication, ordination. We came to see you. This is your house. You invited us here. All of this is a part of you and who you are. So let it be that you are clear and brighter in these moments of study than ever before. In the name of Jesus, amen. 21 years ago today, September 10, 21 years ago today, Brian Birdwell, his wife Mel, and their, their son. Let me put a picture on the screen. There they are, 21 years ago today, September 10. I was put on to, to Brian's story and his book by Dick Stenbachen here in our congregation. But 21 years ago today, this is the Birdwell family. 21 years ago tomorrow, everything changed. Brian worked in the Pentagon. In fact, there's a picture. If, if, you can, if you can make out, there's a circle, a green circle on your left. That's Brian's office. The green square on the right is where he was. The moment of impact when that American Airlines jet slammed into the Pentagon on September 11, 2001. He had been watching the news about the attack on New York in his office, which is the circle on the left, with his office mates. Then he needed to use the restroom, so he excused himself, went down the hall, used the restroom, stepped out of the restroom, and the moment of explosion happened. So he was down the hall from, he never saw his office mates again. They didn't survive. But he did. He used the restroom, stepped out, explosion all around him. It went bright, then it went dark, then it crumbled around him. As Flight 77, American Airlines, barreled into the side of the building, the nose of the aircraft landed about 20 yards away from where he was standing. He could smell the fuel. His polyester army pants melted to his skin. His arms were skinned. He collapsed with blood and black suit caked all over his body. He lay there burning. He says, as he lay there, his, his, he describes it to you. He says, as I lay there, everything went dark except for an orange glow that was around me. That's not a good thing. He realized that orange glow was his own body burning. few minutes passed by. He has, he has given up on life. He believes he's about to lose consciousness and die. Last thoughts and prayers are for his lovely wife, Mel, and their teenage son. He closes his eyes for a few minutes, but then begins to sense something running on his face. He said, I... I, I I hadn't felt that. I just felt pain and just complete agony. And then I, I began to feel this, this like water running. And he realizes that the sprinklers have now come on and, and are soaking his body. And he's, the orange glow is out. In fact, it's all dark. And, and he looks around to try to orientate himself. And he can't see anything except for a pin light in the distance to his right. He tries to get up. His body doesn't respond to what his mind tells him. 
So he claws his way down the hallway, through the mess of rubble, toward the pen light. He gets there, realizes that's the fire doors. And what he, see, what he saw was uh, the light streaming through one of the small windows. He doesn't know how he's going to get through the doors. But as he arrives, the doors open and in steps somebody he knows. So he calls him by name, but the guy, the guy doesn't recognize him. He doesn't know who he is. He's just a black, charred body. He picks him up and carries him to safety. Where paramedics eventually take him. And for the four, next four years, he's subjected to 39 surgeries to repair the 60% of his body that's burned with third-degree burns. His survival is considered a miracle. 39 operations, four years of recovery. There's a picture of him. At one point, he's able to now stand. and You can kind of see him there in the white, just wrapped up from head all the way down to his ankles. He said the bottom of his feet somehow survived. But everything else burned. If we were to invite Brian Birdwell here, ask him, what's it like? His wife, by the way, is, is at home, and somebody tells her to, hey, turn on the TV like millions of other people had to that morning. And she sees the attack on New York and says, I've got to go back. She's homeschooling her son. I'm going to go back to homeschooling him. Turns off the TV. And sometime later, somebody else gets a hold of her and says, no, you you got to turn the TV back on. She turns the TV on to see the Pentagon destroyed and says, wait a minute, wait, 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 this can't be, wait a minute, office, 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 office. That's him. For hours, she's sitting at home, can't get a hold of anybody, doesn't know. For hours and hours later, that he survived. What would the Birdwell's family say to us if they stood up here on this final weekend of our study of the book of Job? What would they say to us have, having gone through a, a trying circumstance, a very a painful ordeal themselves? Let me put Brian Birdwell's words on the screen. This is his testimony. While he, speaking of God, while he may not take away the pain, he gives us the strength to get through to the other side and through it to be closer to God. This is, if there's ever a testimony that is counter-evolution, it's, it's somebody going through a cir circumstance like this and coming out on the other side and saying, I am actually closer to God and thankful for the result of that trying ordeal. Come on, nobody in their right mind can say, yeah, being burned 60% of my body. I have a couple of skin grafts from an accident I suffered in high school. I know the ramifications now years later. I have sensory difficulties in certain parts. I can't imagine 60% of my body having to be grafted and fixed. There's all sorts. It may take four years to do 39 surgeries, but it's decades of ramifications. But he, and he writes it in his book, his book titled Refined by Fire. And that's his testimony. He says this fire brought our family closer to Jesus. And then he says... We are stronger witnesses for the cause of Jesus than we were before. You can't make this stuff up. 
Got your Bibles? We're going back to the book of Job right before the book of Psalms. Book of Job. You don't have a Bible? There's a Bible in the pew in front of you. You grab that. It's worth opening a Bible. We're not here to discuss some third person. We're here to have a personal encounter with a very personal God. Job chapter 1. In the land of Uz, this is verse 1, there lived a man. This, this man's name was Job. He was known as the greatest man in the east. There lived a man whose name was Job. The man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. That's his testimony. That's the testimony of, of the friends around him, even those that didn't serve the same God he did, even his children that may have been in rebellion. We know our dad, he is faithful to God. That's his testimony. In fact, that testimony was the same testimony that heaven would give. Chapter, chapter 6, while, while Job's in, in us, in the land of us, heaven is having a little convocation, a little, little meeting. One day the angels came, to this is verse 6, chapter 1, came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan came with them. All right, now Satan shows up. And the Lord looks directly at Satan and says, <clears throat> uh, where do you come from? Satan answered, I come from roaming the earth, going back and forth on it. That's my territory. Each one of these angels represented a part of God's universe. And Satan shows up and says, I've got a right to be here. I represent the earth. Now that may just seem like, uh, come on, Satan, that's a, that's a, that's a little, little narcissistic. That's a, that's a little overstatement there. But it's way more than that. You have to understand that... <clears throat> earth was made as a special part of God's creation where he put his very image known as mankind on the planet. Satan is claiming to represent the image of God. I'm sorry God, I know <laughs> you think, yeah, nope, they're mine. Satan is in the convocation in heaven. What nerve he has, he stands before God and he says, yep, I'm taking your glory. I'm taking your glory. It's as if a kidnapper stood before a mother and a father and took their child and said, what you going to do about it? They're mine. Satan is taking a stand and saying to God, I've got your glory. And God says, well, Satan, I appreciate your honesty there, but what are you going to do about my servant Job? There's no one on the earth like him. Here's the testimony. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Satan, you've got a problem with your little plan there. Satan claims to have stolen the, the, the glory of God. Satan claims to have taken the, the territory of God as his own. Now let's extrapolate that because that's exactly what is happening now in the great controversy. Satan is pointing towards heaven and saying, I have taken God's place here. I represent the earth. This is my territory. It's mine. What are you going to do about it? They're all, my, all of them made in your image, God, are mine. What are you going to do? It's the same accusation Satan has made for thousands of years. What does God do? He points at his faithful and he says, Satan, you've got a problem. What about what about my servants? That's a powerful song, then, Make Me a Servant. <laughs> Brings a whole new light to that. Well, here, the book of Job, this is, this is the opening scene. It's, a, it's, a, it's this controversy. 
for the first two chapters. And then, like the next 36 chapters, Satan's friends bore us to death and confuse us about what's really going on. And they just keep talking over themselves, and then one talks, and then you, you try to figure out what they're... What did he mean? And then the other friend speaks up, and, and for 36 chapters, the book of Job is boring, confusing. What, what are they trying to figure out? Well, 36 chapters later, in chapter 38, God shows up. The very, Job has wanted God to show up. He said, God, come on, where is my God? I want to bring my case before him. Job chapter 38. So you're going to the end of the book of Job. It only goes to 42 chapters. So if you get to the end, you just turn back a page like I just had to do. There you go, Job chapter 38, verse 1. Then, then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. So that's God speaking, right? We talked about the storm last week. Now, verse 2. Listen to, listen to God. Who is this that obscures my plans? Apparently, God was confused for 36 chapters as well. Well, what are all these guys talking about? He shows up. He's just like, what are you guys talking about? Why are you obscuring my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. That sounds a little aggressive on God's part. Like, whoa, God, come on, just calm down. But that's actually what's, what... Job has been asking for all along. He says, if God would allow me, I would come to him like a man and present my case. This, this phrase, this expression, brace yourself like a man, is this expression that they would use where they would, it, would say, it, would, uh, it would literally mean pull up your robe. So they would take their robes and tie them kind of in some sort of quasi-shorts to free their, their movement so they could get to work. It was, it was just an invitation to get to serious work. Come on, roll up your, we'd say roll up your sleeves. Let's get to work. So God says to, to, says to Job, hey, pull up, your, pull up your skirt. Pull up your robe. We got some talking to do. God then starts. He says, before you say, before you say anything, let me explain a few, just a few basics here. God starts with, with the cosmos. Where were you? Just, just give me an idea of where were you when I laid the foundations of the planet you stand on. Where were you, Job, when I measured out the corners and put the cornerstone in place? God starts with the cosmos. He ends with two aquatic monsters. These are some of the most fascinating chapters in all of Scripture. 38, 39, 40, 41, 42. Five chapters. God just unpacking. He, he says, where were you when the morning stars and the angels sang after they saw my creation? Were you there, Job? No, not quite, right? Where were you when I gave the hawk the wisdom to fly, or the mountain goat, the ability to give birth. Come on, Job. Let's talk. If you want to talk, let's talk. Well, what Job realizes as he listens to God, that for 36 chapters, he's wasted his life. In, in chapter 42, verse 6, he responds to God. At verse 3, uh, starting verse 3, he says, he repeats back to God, you have asked who obscures my plans without knowledge? And then he says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. What Job realizes is that they have been asking not 
not, they have not just been seeking for the wrong answers. They've been asking the wrong questions. The questions have never been about Job's suffering. They never should have been. They always and always should have been about God. God shows up and he doesn't deal with Job's suffering. He said, we can talk about your suffering. We can talk about the next suffering. But here's the answer to all of the questions. Who is God? Once you identify who is God, once you recognize who God is, it answers every question. What about seven sons, three daughters, losing them? That's tragic. Who is God? What about your own health and your own finances? Who is God? Once you answer that question, the central conversation, it, it deals with everything else. Job says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful. And then he uses that, that little word, we, we translate it too wonderful. It's the same expression that God uses when he meets with Abraham and he tells Abraham, you and Sarah can have a son. And Abraham says, no, nah, not really. And Sarah, of course, laughs. And, and God says to Abraham, is there anything too wonderful? Or some translations will render it too hard. Is there anything too hard for God? Anything too wonderful? And so Job here is saying, God, I'm sorry. I spoke of things that are too hard for me to understand. I shouldn't have demand. Wow, please forgive me. When God shows up, that's the answer. Ah, you say, that's, man, that's, that's tough. Well, if God is the answer, if God is the fulfillment for every one of our needs, then him being glorified or elevated is the satisfaction of everything we need. Uh, John Piper put it, I'll put this on the screen. John Piper put it in his blog, Desiring God. He put, God is the one thing in all the universe for whom seeking his own praise is the, ultimate, is the ultimately at loving act. For himself, for him, self-exaltation is the highest virtue. Why? Why? Because in exalting himself, he becomes the answer to everything else. He is it. And you can look and you can try to solve it and patch it a thousand different ways. But God is the answer. And that's what Job and his, his closest friends lost track of. Wait a minute, what about your problem, Job? Let's, let's solve why there's a problem. Well, the problem is you caused it, or the problem is God is punishing you, or the problem is this. No, 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 no. That's irrelevant to the, to the real conversation. You're just dealing with a symptom. Talk about the real issue. Who is God? And beloved, it doesn't come any different to us. When I am burdened down with anxiety or stress or worry, the same question is not a solution. I, we all think, well, if I could just get a little more, more money, then my finance, I would be, it would be solved. If I just didn't have this stomach pain, if I just didn't have, if I could just solve the issue. The problem is, at least in 42 years of my life, there always is another issue. And that's God's point. If you're just trying to solve the issue, you're dealing with a symptom. But if you solve the question, who is your God? Then you solve every issue that will come up because they'll keep coming. When God is our everything, when he is glorified, we become satisfied. When God is glorified and he becomes our everything, we become satisfied complete. It, it won't change that that Job lost 
seven sons and three daughters. It doesn't change that Brian Birdwell has to suffer the consequences of the tragedy for decades. While some of us just reference it with pictures and history books, he lives it every day. We get to the end of Job, the story of Job. Job chapter 42 it takes an interesting turn. We've sometimes read it too fast. Job chapter 42 and verse 12, it says, The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. There's some operative language here. There's, there's, there's some terminology here that was meant to kind of trip us up. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former. Let me take you back to little Harper. So, uh, Proverbs 22. The way that she starts, she will finish. The idea here is not just the first part of Job's life and then as he neared death. That's not the contrast. The contrast is when he started the trial. That's the, that's the, that's the, the bulk of, of Job's story. Before the trial, he was a righteous man. But through the trial, he became even more righteous, even more intimate and close to God. Job was already in a good place. We could sit back and say, you're in a good place, Job. Why did God have to do that? Because good is the enemy of great, and God isn't going to settle with good. Just because you're, you're okay with God doesn't mean God is done working on any of us. And we can say, well, I'm in a good place. Why don't God, why don't, it happens every time you pull over somebody with the police department. Hey, you are speeding. You know what you should really be about? They tell you, you should go chase those murderers and rapists. Those are the people you should get really be focused on. It's the same thing we would do with God. God, why you, don't worry about me. I'm good. I had my worship with you. I went to church. I even taught Sabbaths. I'm okay. And God says, no, no, that's the problem. As this thing never ends, we can go deeper and further than we ever imagined. And so this is this contrast. The first part of Job, he was okay. He was good. But God was going to make him great. And now follow. Jump down to verse 13. Verse 13. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. He's got seven sons and three daughters. Then verse 14. And the daughters, the first daughter... He named Jemima, the second, Keziah, and the third, Karen Hapak. Where's the boys? And, and the boy, there's no mention of the boys. They don't, get, they don't get a reference. They don't get a name. They're anonymous. Andrew's Bible commentary caught this and, and got me studying into it, and, and I think they're onto something. The very end in this very patriarchal establishment, which is not bad. It was established by God. It, I, we're not picking on that. But the end of the book of Job begins, begins to insert some language that trips us up. Wait a minute. Why were the three girls mentioned and not the, not the seven boys? And then in verse 15, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. That was unheard of for the most part, with very few exceptions. Why? Because they would marry and become part of another inheritance. They didn't, but the language of Job, this final chapter, is to point our attention that this is not about a here and a now. This is about the big picture. 
This is Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. What Job is trying to do is say there's a cosmic scene. There is a heavenly scene at the beginning. And at the very end, there's another heavenly scene where everyone receives an inheritance. And so he uses his daughters to just trip us up to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why, why are only the girls mentioned? Why are... The boys were just as important. There's no argument here. We're not talking about boys and girls. We, we're going to read in our own culture into this and say, whoa, okay, this is a statement about girls and the boys. And it's not. It was language used to trip us up to say, wait a minute. This is talking about something more than what is on face value. <clears throat> you see, the beginning of Job begins with this Job is an example to the unfallen universe and to Satan and his demons. And at the end, there will be a community of faith that serve as a spectacle to the universe again. Having gone through the trials and tribulations, they will emerge deeper and more committed to Jesus and his kingdom than they were in the beginning. That's the language. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 9 says, We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. God is using our story, beloved. He's using your life to be an illustration, to be an example, to be a statement to the universe. Meanwhile, you and I are down here complaining about the paycheck and the stomach ache and the suffering. God says, you just, you don't know how big this really is. One of you, one person, Job by himself, could serve as an example. But now God is trying to raise up a community of examples that will be a spectacle to the universe. John Piper, in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, one of my favorite books, just worth reading and rereading. Let me put his line on the screen. People go deep with God when the drought comes. Brian and Mel Birdwell will tell us that's what, that was the catalyst for them. I wouldn't wish the, the dark times of my life ever to return or on anyone else, but I can attest as well the darkest times of my life were the times that drove me to be the most intimate, the closest to God. People go deep with God when the drought comes. Untold numbers of professing Christians, listen how he, just, he doesn't mince words, waste their lives trying to escape the cost of love. God is saying, look, I'm going to prove to the universe that we can be successful just with love. And you guys run from it. You guys run from it. That was Satan's accusation to God. He only loves you. He only loves you back because you take good care of him. And God says, nope, I believe love on its own will win the day. We spend our lives trying to escape the cost of love. There is more of God's glory to be seen and savored through suffering than through self-serving escape. This doesn't invite suffering. It doesn't ask for it. But it does answer the bigger questions. I, I, I'll do this for the sake of what God is doing. Somebody handed me a few years ago during a difficult time in my life, they handed me the book Red Sea Rules. Red Sea Rules, it's a small book written by Robert Morgan. 
He's a prolific author, written several other books, all worth reading, my humble opinion. But the Red Sea Rules, I would recommend it for anybody in a difficult time. Robert Morgan begins to unpack, how can God be glorified in this situation? That's the question we have to ask. God, I'm suffering. How can you be glorified? And then he points us to Exodus chapter 14, verses 3 and 4, when Israel is pinned up against the Red Sea, and Pharaoh and his, his army is advancing, and it's an impossible situation. And then God says, but I, I know you're, hurt. you're hurting because you, you, you think you're going to die, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. God says, the more, the better. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. In fact, Every nation that Israel encountered on the way to the promised land and in the promised land referenced this event. The word spread, don't mess with Israel's God. Why not, why not be willing, willing to go through the trying ordeal that God has for you so that he can get the glory? Because in the glory, you will be filled. You will be made complete. Robert Morgan puts the four words together. He says, God doesn't waste suffering. He doesn't waste suffering. If God has brought you into something or allowed something to touch your life, he will make beautiful things, powerful things happen. It is, by the way, the reason that we love the Bible so much is that there's stories like the Red Sea, like giants, massive enemy armies, lion's dens, lameness, blindness, people that are dead that are raised to life. That's the reason the Bible's so powerful. Take those stories out, and it loses it. God is glorified through these dark and difficult times. I don't wish them on anybody, but I know God will do beautiful things. That's the story of Job. Job, in the midst of his suffering, not at the end, this isn't chapter 40 or 41 or 42, but in the very midst of his suffering, Job stands up and says, I want everyone to know I'm holding on. Job 19, verse 25, I know my Redeemer lives. I know my Redeemer lives. I know he lives in the dark moment of his life. Job chose to hold on and declare that God was still faithful. You know, the interesting thing about the story of Job is that it starts telling us that he offered sacrifices for his children. Job knew the story of a Redeemer that would come. He knew the story of a lamb that would have to die. Job knew that his Redeemer would have to suffer. Job knew the story. And so when he stands up in the midst of his own suffering, he is acknowledging that his Redeemer, he knows that he will suffer as well. And that through that suffering, he will gain the victory. That's what John, 4, uh, John 12, verse 27, Jesus is praying this prayer. I'll put it on the screen for you. Now my soul is troubled. This is a, 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 an agonizing death, the second death, the eternal death that, that Jesus is about to suffer. My soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Jesus said, should I, should I be asking to be taken away from this suffering? No! It was for this reason I came. The suffering I came to do was so that your name, O God, would be glorified. Father, glorify your name. 
at the end of Job's story, God speaks again to Job's friends. And he speaks to Job in, in verse 7. Job chapter 42 and verse 7. He said, after that, the Lord said, after the Lord said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz. And that's, he just says, Eliphaz, look, I'm going to talk to you and your buddies here, all right? I'm going to talk to you. I am angry with you and your two other friends because you have not, you have not spoken the truth about me. The central conversation is about who God is. And they didn't get it. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take some sacrifices and offer sacrifice. And then he says, my servant Job, verse 8, the end of verse 8, my servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. Catch that. God says to, to Job's three friends, I'm angry with you. You guys, deserve, you, guys, you guys deserve consequence. But I'm going to save you because of this, sufferings man, this suffering man's prayer. Job, full circle, becomes the intercessor for his friends that becomes their salvation. So what about your friends? The people in your circle, the, the friends and neighbors around you. Who is God going to use to reach them? Could it be that he uses your suffering, your story, to become the means of their salvation? The very people you're praying for. Lord, be glorified in their lives. Please reach them. And God says, I know, I'm trying. I'm going to lead you through a dark place and then you're going to be the means I use for their salvation. Your test will become a testimony and that testimony will become their salvation. Oh, and we spend our lives trying to escape it, to complain about it. I'm, I'm sitting down reading a book I read every week, or at least a section of the book I read every week, the book Maranatha, written by Ellen White. I'm reading it this last week, and these lines jump off the page and say, this is what we're talking about. Read it for you. To be a co-worker with Christ and the heavenly angels is the great plan of salvation. To be a co-worker, that's, you can't be saved without being a co-worker. That's the line. What work, can bear, what work can bear any comparison with this? And then listen to this line. For every soul saved, there comes to God a revenue of glory to be reflected upon the one saved and also upon the one instrumental in his salvation. You and I have been on our knees praying, God, please be glorified in my life. Please be glorified in my life. And God is saying, look, Read the story of Job. There's a test, a time of darkness, of anxiety, of stress. I bring you through that. And through that, you, become a, you, 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 you have a testimony. That testimony becomes the means by which your neighbors and friends are saved. And their salvation brings me the very glory that you're praying for. It is incredibly hypocritical for you and I to pray that God receives glory and not be willing to share our testimony with our friends and neighbors. That's the epitome of hypocrisy. To pray for it, but not be willing to let our lives be the light. I've got one more story. You may be familiar with this story. In fact, most of you might be. It's the story of Marianne and TJ. TJ's ER doc out in Northern California. Got four kids. 
Picture's on the screen. Back on July 28, 2019, TJ is in the ER doing his job, treating patients as they come in. He hears over the EMS trauma radio, which they have there in the ER, so that they know what's coming in. He hears over their radio a call out for an accident, a motor vehicle accident in which there is a fatality. And then he hears the address, which happens to be the same rural road that they live on. And he, he, he starts listening in. Wait a minute. That's my street. We live out in the country. There's not a lot of cars that travel on that street. He's still doing his job, but he's listening to the radio. And he calls home finds out his son has stayed there with his cousins, but that his wife and daughters left a short time ago. He said, this is getting too real. As the paramedics arrive and begin to describe the patients that they are administering care to, they describe a 35-year-old female with a broken neck. He's saying, wait, wait a minute, my, my, my wife is 35 years old. And they describe the girls. There's a, there's a young girl here with a broken femur. There's another young girl here. Wait a minute, I've got three girls. And he puts the pieces together. And then, standing in the ER, he finds out that his nine-year-old daughter, Sierra, his firstborn, is the fatality in the accident. You can only imagine as a father, as a parent, what must have gone through this man's head in those moments. He was there to meet the helicopter as it landed with Mary Ann, his wife, her twisted, contorted, broken body. He was there for his little girls, screaming in pain. But he couldn't be there for the one that was left. been a couple of years, three years. Marianne and TJ have experienced this. Their story has been told and retold and highlighted in Melody Mason's book, Daring to Live by Every Word, a fantastic read. This week I listened again. I've known this story, but I listened again twice over to their testimony. Marianne is paralyzed in a wheelchair. They still don't have their daughter and they won't see her until the resurrection. But TJ and Mary Ann, if, if they were asked, as they have been over and over, to share their story, this is what they say. We'd like to tell you how good God is. <laughs> what? Until Jesus comes, Marianne, you're in a wheelchair. Can't use half your body. And until Jesus comes, there's a nine-year-old that, that you love with all your heart. That you can't. What do you mean how good God is to you? It doesn't make sense scientifically, mathematically. You can't add this stuff up. But TJ and Marianne, along with their three remaining children, will stand here and tell you as they have. God has been very good to us and we've learned to be closer to him through this than ever before. And then they pray. We pray, this is their words, we pray that our story, our test 
Imoni will bring others closer to Jesus and that there will be more in heaven, a revenue of glory because of what we've gone through. Do they wish it on anybody? Are you kidding? No. But are they willing to praise God for the results of what has happened? That's their story. That's Brian Birdwell's story. That's Marianne and TJ's story. What about your story? What are you to do with the pain? God doesn't waste suffering. I'd like to invite the worship team up. If God doesn't waste suffering, what could he do through your life? The darkness, the anxiety. What, could, what can God do through your life? You know what I believe? If we're willing to surrender that pain and that anxiety and that suffering and that difficulty to him, he will bring about some fruit, some choice fruit from it. We will be closer to him than ever before. The latter end, the latter end of Job's life was more than the former part. The latter end of your life can be more than the former part. Take your test, let God turn it into a testimony, and then let him change the world with your life. Hallelujah. I'm going to invite the worship or the, uh, the ushers to collect our tithes and our offerings, to collect those, those PAL inserts and the, and the surveys and whatever else we need to turn in, the connect cards. As together we sing our, for the last time in this series, our commitment anthem that before, before it's all solved, we will worship, we will bless before.
you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you in your pain and give you peace until again we meet in worship. Amen.